0: I trust you all had a good afternoon. It's good to be back with you tonight. And uh, hopefully the questions I asked the kids this morning were helpful. Uh, We talked about that a little bit at lunch and uh, had a good, if brief, discussion on a couple of those things. So I have two more questions for you tonight, kids. The first one is, is joy different from happiness? And the second question is, where do we find joy? This morning we looked at Paul's motive, his method, and the results of his approach to discipleship. And with regards to his motive, I said future joy was the thing that drove Paul to do what he was going to do, and one of the results of faithfully doing what he was supposed to do was that he received joy even in his present service. And so tonight I want us to think about this subject of joy. Are you joyful? Joy is hard to define, isn't it? Happiness, as we often think of it, is, is easier to explain. We often would probably think happiness is the, it's the feeling you get when your team wins. It's the feeling you get when you get to sleep in. It's the feeling you have when you eat a good steak or a good salad or go on a shopping trip, for those of you whose food isn't your thing. Whatever it might be, it's, it's these sorts of things. But we tend to think of happiness as sort of a a feeling that doesn't last. Before I get to a couple of passages I want to talk about to you, I was reading an article that John Piper wrote, and the title of the article was, How Do You Define Joy? This was his definition. I'm just going to read it so that we can think about it. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. There was another article that I was reading by a a fellow named Randy Alcorn, and his title of his article was Happiness or Joy or Both. And in his article, he said that I'm arguing against the prevalent evangelical belief that joy is good and godly and happiness is bad and worldly. So I want us to just think about that for a moment. Why do we think that happiness is bad? And could it be the same thing as joy? I think part of the reason that we think this way is because we tend to think of happiness as an emotion. And we often tend to view emotions as a bad thing. Feelings are a bad thing. Now, I would agree that if we always act according to our feelings, that's a problem, right? Because our lives need to be governed by truth, not necessarily by how we feel. But at the same time, God has made feelings a part of us. Uh, People describe how we're made up in different ways. But most would agree that there's a thinking part of us, a choosing part of us, and a feeling part of us. But it's easy for us sometimes to say, well, you know, I've got those three parts, but but this one I just gotta sort of tuck that away in the corner and it, it's not a good thing to have. Also, we tend to be suspicious of our emotions because they can be hard to control. And so when you have a definition like the one I read a moment ago that says joy is a good feeling, we say, wait a minute, how how can this be something that would be something that I would pursue? We tend to think, passage like John 16, 22, Jesus said, I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take it from you. We tend to say, well, joy is something that's permanent, and happiness is something that isn't. Or we look at a passage, like 1 Thessalonians 5, where it says, Rejoice always, and we say, well, joy must be something that I can control. Or we look at a passage... Like James 1, 1 and 2, where it says rejoice in various trials. We say, well, if I can have it even in trials, then this must be something that's, that's just profound and, and, and lasting and, and different. We'll talk more at the end about what joy is. But before we get there, I want us to think about where do we find joy? And turn with me to Psalm 16, if you would. Psalm 16. I believe that we find joy in God who is our refuge. And I think there's three reasons from this passage why we find joy in God our refuge. The first is because He is our good. The second is because He is our provision. And the third is because He is our hope. And so in Psalm 16, David starts out with a simple but a necessary request. He says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And we just sang several songs that talked about God's role as rescuer and deliverer, that He's our shield, that He, he washes over us. And so David turns to God in his difficulty, and he says, "Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you." But then in the rest of the chapter, he describes why is he turning to God? Why is God as his refuge? Why does he want to seek after God? He starts out by saying God is our good. Look at verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. Or to put it another way, because God alone is sufficient. James 1 says every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change, there is no turning. Psalm 73:25 has a similar sentiment to verse 2. Psalm 73:25 says, "Whom do I have in heaven but you?" And there's many different things that we turn to in life. But verse 2 says, "I have no good besides you." That doesn't mean there aren't good things, but I think it does point out to us that God is the ultimate good. And so all other goods are only good compared to God because they come to God, come from God and in connection with Him. But then David says an interesting thing in verse 3. He says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And we might pause and say, David, what does that have to do with the other thing that you just said? I think that what David is doing here is that he's saying that God is our good because His people reflect His character. And so where he says, these are the ones in whom is all my delight, David is saying, as I look at God, and as I look at God's people, I rejoice in them, which ultimately means that he's rejoicing in God, like we looked at this morning, because God is the one who is working in those people. And so uh, we need to be careful when we look at verse 3 that we don't see in this verse some kind of... You might come across some commentary that would say that this is some kind of, of reverence or awe or maybe almost bordering on worship that David is expressing toward these people. That's not what's going on here. David is looking at them, and as he looks at them, it points him to God. In this, I think that he is pointing us to the fact that in the way of the righteous we find joy. I think this is highlighted by what he says in the next verse. He says in the next verse, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Why is God our good? Because rejecting Him brings sorrow. The way of the unrighteous brings sorrow. As you look, for example, in the wisdom literature in the Bible, you find a lot of things, Proverbs and in Psalms, and in other uh, wisdom statements in the Bible, you often have this theme come up. There are two paths. There are two ways that we can follow. There's the way of wisdom that is connected with blessing from God, that is connected with God's goodness, that is connected with uh, a relationship with God. And then on the other hand, you have the way of destruction. The way that he describes in verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who bartered for another God will be multiplied. And we look at that and we say, Well, but is that really true? But that's the question Adam and Eve had to ask themselves in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted them, right? Satan comes to Eve and he says, Is this what God said? And what's he doing there? He's going after her belief in, her trust in God. Is God really good? Is God withholding something from you that would really be good if you could have it? When God makes a statement like, if you eat from the tree, you will die, do we believe it? Adam and Eve, at least for a time, at least in that moment of sin, didn't. And when David makes a statement like this, that the sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied, do we believe it? Because there's many things in life that we could worship. There's many things in life that we could serve. But David says, following that path is going to lead us to sorrow. But the problem is, That sorrow doesn't show up right away always, does it? The sorrow doesn't always show up when you say, you know what, church is not that important, prayer is not that important, being with God's people isn't all that important. The sorrow doesn't show up right then. The sorrow shows up sometimes way down the line when we've made choices that have harmed ourselves and harmed our families, and have dishonored God. And so talking to the kids who are in here, I would say to you this, when it says, following other gods brings you sorrow, believe what God says. Don't follow other gods. Even if it seems like people who are doing that are doing well. Because if you look on the news, or you look on all these other things, you see people who are... uh, in positions of power, who are entertainers, who are sports stars, whatever, and I'm not saying all of them are this way, but there are a number of them who have their, their public face, what they would present to the world, and then they have their private life, and when that spills out into the public view, you see the misery and the agony and the emptiness of living your life your own way instead of following God. And so what does David say in response to that? He says, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. We say, what does that have to do with what he just said before? The point of what he's saying was, in the Old Testament times, one of the things that you would do that showed that you were worshipping an idol was that you would sacrifice an animal, you would kill an animal, and you would bring that sacrifice to the altar of whatever idol it was, and you would put it there as a sign to say, I'm worshipping this idol, I'm worshipping this god and david says because i know that's the way of sorrow i'm not going to do that And he says nor will i take their names upon my lips i don't think he's necessarily talking about the people who are following the other god i think he's saying i'm not going to take the names of those other gods on my lips to worship them there's one god and his is the name that i'm gonna honor his is the name that i'm gonna praise his is the name that i'm gonna worship and so Why would we seek God as our refuge? Because He's our good. He's sufficient. We can rejoice in Him as we rejoice in His people. The alternative is a way of sorrow. We also seek after God as our refuge because He is our provision. Look at verse 5. It says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. So what's the first thing that he's saying? God provides our needs. God provides our needs. And I think about Matthew 6, 25 to 34. And in that passage, it talks about the fact that if God cares for the birds of the sky and the grasses, the flowers of the field, He cares for us too. I know on Wednesday night we weren't too excited about the birds. We'd rather they stayed outside instead of inside. But if you look at a bird and you say, God cares for this tiny little creature, arguing from the lesser to the greater, how much more does God care for His people for whom He sent His Son? Or even uh, last night I was standing out by my garage and it was pouring down rain. I see these two little birds sitting under a tree, on the, uh, not a tree, a chair, on the patio, just sheltering from the rain. I was just thinking, God is watching out for them. He can be watching out for me too. And He does. And that idea about the grasses of the field, I have a a tall clump of grass in my backyard. It turned green. It flowered. Now the flowers have all turned kind of a yellowish-brown color didn't take very long, maybe a week. And yet God designed that, and God oversees that. And there's a lot of parallels that the Bible makes between our lives and that clump of grass in terms of how short and how fragile and all those sorts of things. But if God cares for that, then God will care for us as well. He provides our needs. I think this is illustrated especially what it says in um, Numbers 18.20. I'm just going to read that verse for you here. Think back to the people of Israel, and they're getting the land. And it says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, the leader of the tribe of Levi, You shall have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Think about that if you're from the tribe of Levi. You guys don't get any land. You know, all of us live somewhere. We have a house or apartment or something like that. If God had said, you're not going to have that necessarily, I'm going to take care of you. At one level, that might be a frightening thing, right? Because there's security in possessing something, a place where you can stand and say, this is mine, and I'm looking after it, and this is where I live. But God said to the the tribe of Levi, he said, you're not going to have that. You're going to have to trust in me, that I'm going to watch out for you, that I'm going to provide your food, that your fellow tribes are not going to take advantage of you, because you don't have anywhere else to turn. I think that's some of the sentiment that David is echoing here when he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup, you support my lot. Obviously, David was the king. He had houses and lands and all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, he looked to God as his portion, as his security, as the one who provided for him. But God is our provision not only in meeting our needs, but also in blessing with abundance beyond our needs. Look at verse 6. It says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Now, to a certain extent... I think that what is being dealt with here is a matter of perspective, because God blesses us in many different ways, but it's really easy for us to look at how God has blessed us and to look at someone else and say, he's got more, or to look at some other part of the world and say, I wish I had that, you know, you see some travel photo or something like that, well, that would be great to to wake up to and, and to see that every day. But God has blessed us abundantly. There's two passages that I want to illustrate this from um, uh, with regards to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. I'm just going to read those briefly for you. He says in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 through 20 Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So we look at that. It's easy for us to look around at what we have and to say, I want some other thing. And sometimes I think God wants us to pause and to look around and see at all the ways that He has blessed us. And often, several times in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this, you have your family, you have your work, you have food and the place that God's provided for you to live, rejoice in these blessings. Now the larger context of Ecclesiastes is rejoice in these blessings knowing that life is short and you serve God and you're looking to eternity and all those sorts of things. But there's not wrong for us to enjoy the life that God has set before us. And I think God has called us to enjoy it. And I think sometimes our lives in our world today are so saturated with busyness and with things and everything else that we we don't enjoy the simple basic pleasures in life that God has given to us. We don't see them as abundance beyond our needs. So along these lines, I would ask you, do you enjoy God's gifts well? Whether that be time with your family, whether that be even the work that you do, whether that be the food that you eat, the situation in which God has placed us, do you enjoy that and see it as a blessing and as abundance from God? We also turn to God as our refuge because he is our hope and we see this in verses 7 through 11. First of all, because God gives us counsel. Verse 7 says, "I will bless the Lord who has counseled me; indeed, my mind instructs me in the night." In this verse we have this element this idea of God's guidance, God's leading, God's direction. If you think back to the Old Testament, how did God lead his people? Well, He led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt with a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. God doesn't lead us in that dramatic of a way today, and yet, in some ways, we are more blessed than the Israelites who saw even that work of God because God leads us through His Word. We don't have to wait until God talks to Moses and says, here's what I want you to do. We can go right to God's Word and say, God, what should I do? And we find counsel and direction and encouragement from His Word. And we see this in the fact that it can come to our minds even in the night. He said, Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I don't know if this happens to you. I've had a couple of nights this week when I, when I couldn't sleep right away. I was just thinking about a whole bunch of things and different things were coming to mind. And uh, thankfully, at least some of them were truths about God and what He's doing and truths from some of these passages. When you lie awake at night, does God ever bring to mind truths from His Word? Sometimes that happens if we've been exposed to good truths in the context of our church, and that's good. It also happens as we read God's Word for ourselves and and we, we think about truth, we see truth in God's Word. So when it comes to this subject of counsel... Where do you turn when you need guidance? It's not bad to seek advice from people who have gone through a particular experience before you, who have uh, more knowledge of something. It would be foolish of us not to do that. It's not bad to turn to family members or friends for advice and counsel. But if God is the last place that we look for counsel, then I think we haven't caught the sentiment of what David is saying here that not only can we receive God's counsel, but I will bless, I will rejoice in the Lord who gives me that counsel. I think we also see that God is our hope because he preserves us. Verse 8 I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. We see God as our hope. God preserves us with the result that we can be unshaken in the face of trouble. Look at verse 8. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Do you have an awareness of God's presence? I mean, the Bible teaches us that God is everywhere. But do we realize, do we recognize that He's there? It's really easy for us to go get so caught up in the events of our day that we don't even think God is present here. When we face something that we're unsure about, when we face something that's difficult, God is present with and among His people. There's a, an amazing picture of this in Ephesians. Paul describes the Ephesian believers, and he says, you're like a building, that's being built up as a holy temple to God. And God, the Holy Spirit, is dwelling within each one of us individually, and God is dwelling within the whole structure that's being built up for His glory among all of us. So not only in us, but among us. And God's presence is there. And when we recognize that God's presence is there, when in our minds we set God before our eyes, we have set the Lord continually before me, then... We can be unshaken. We can also dwell securely, as it says in verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. So not only do we have an awareness of God's presence, but it produces in us rejoicing. It produces for us security. And then it sort of builds to verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And people dispute over what this verse means. And one of the reasons that there's arguments about what this verse means is because Peter uses it in Acts 2 and applies it to Jesus. Basically says, Jesus was not going to stay dead because God has the power to preserve life, to prevent Him from undergoing decay. And the subject of prophecy and how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, all of these things, is a large subject that we don't have time to go into all the detail of. But I would simply say this. I think what Peter is doing is not changing the meaning of what David said. What David had in view here is God preserves his anointed. In this case, I think, by sparing David's physical life. Think back over David's life. There were a bunch of times when Saul threatened David that he was going to kill him, right? And so I think David is rejoicing in the fact that God was preserving his life. And I think Peter makes the point in the same way God was not going to let Jesus remain in the grave. He was going to raise him from the dead. And so that gives hope. But then the verse that I've been uh, working toward, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand there are pleasures forever why do we have hope in God why is he our refuge where do we find joy we come to God for these things because he opens the way to us verse 11 you will make known to me the path of life only on God's path can we find eternal life look back to verses 3 and 4 there's rejoicing in the presence of God's people There's sorrow in the presence of those who reject God. And so verse 11, when it says, you'll make known to me the path of life, what is the path of life? The path of life is found in a relationship with God. Jesus says in one of the Gospels, He said, there's a broad way that leads to destruction and a narrow way that leads to eternal life. And it's easy for us to say, well... That's good for people who need it. But I'm healthy. I'm relatively young. I don't need that stuff. Religion is a crutch for people who can't make it on their own. It's easy for us to think things like that. There's a lot of people we encounter in our day-to-day lives who do think that. At the end of the day, it comes down to this. God has said that there's a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. And we have to say, do I believe what God has said? Or am I going to go my own way? It's a man named Blaise Pascal that basically said, which is worse, assuming that God, assuming that there is no God and then finding out that there is one, Or assuming that there is a God and then finding out there isn't one. I don't know that that's the most persuasive argument, but it does illustrate this point. Which is, at the end of the day, those who have rejected God are going to discover that the things that they have rejected are in fact true. And the people that they have mocked and said, you've been wasting your time with foolishness, When they have God's presence and God's favor, they will will weep. There will be sorrow because God's going to say, these are the ones who belong to me and these are the ones that I've never known go away from me into everlasting destruction. So what is the eternal path of life? It's what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. A lot of people will say there are many paths to God. There's one way. I can't make it up. I can't take a poll and pick the one that I like. I have to follow the path that God has revealed through Jesus. And when I say follow the path, I want to be clear. It's not the language we sometimes hear when people have difficulty in their life and they say, well, you know what? I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to live, a, be a better person. Because at the end of the day, I can't be a better enough person for God to let me into heaven. Even one sin is enough to condemn me forever, and we've all committed many. I was talking uh, the other day with someone, and this person said, well, but if we... Uh, you know, if we, if we do wrong and then we, we say that we're sorry for it, then that sort of takes care of it. God can't accept that. God's justice demands that something happen to pay for the sins that have been committed. I can't do it. You can't do it. But Jesus did it. And so only on God's path we find eternal life. Only in turning away from trusting in ourselves and our own efforts and in turning and trusting in Jesus and what he did that I couldn't do, that is the path to life. And yes, it leads to doing good works in God's sight, but the good works don't get me to a place where God is happy with me. I do the good works because Jesus paid the price for my sin and makes me right with God. And then this last phrase here that I wanted to get to as sort of the the thing that I think that this passage is building to. Only in God's presence do we find full joy and eternal pleasure as His people. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And so coming back to our question about what is joy, I think this passage would say to us, That joy is centered on and connected to our relationship with God. To a certain extent, the key to joy is are we connected to God? Why do those other things not last? The sense of pleasure that we feel from uh, good food, from time with family, from our team winning the game, whatever else it might be, why don't those things last? Because God didn't make us to live only and be fully satisfied in those things. God made us to be fully satisfied and find happiness only in Him. It says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. There's something in us that is always dissatisfied, even in the happiest moments of our lives, if we don't have a relationship with God because God made us to worship and to serve Him, and if we don't do that, we're not doing what God made us to do. So do you believe this? Do you believe that in God's presence is fullness of joy and in His right hand there are pleasures forever? Because if you don't really believe that, then why not go the way that this says is sorrow, but everybody else says is a good way to go? Why not do what we see so many around us in the world doing? Why not do that if you don't believe what it says in verse 11? But if you do believe it, then the only response is to follow the path of life that God has made known, to follow the God who's laid the path out before us, and to find the joy that only He can offer. So are joy and happiness the same thing? I tend to think that they're more closely connected than we often assume. But at the end of the day, where do we find it? Only in God. So coming back to my first question. Are you joyful? You can only answer that question yes if you have a relationship with God. And so that's where it has to start. And so if you don't, I think God would urge all of us to say, you have to decide this now, not put it off till tomorrow. Because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed the time after that. We're not guaranteed next week. If we're not sure about this, this is something that we deal with right now. If you do possess this joy, then my hope and my prayer would be that at every point in which we say, I need God's help, that we would cry out like David did, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you, that we would see him as our highest good and our sufficient inheritance and the one who is our hope. Not just a hope of, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow or I hope work goes well this week, but the sort of hope that you can say, I will stake my life on this. Do you have joy? Do you have the kind of joy that David talks about here in this passage? Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we're not joyful. Sometimes we're not joyful because we think that our joy has to do with what's around us instead of whether or not we know you. Sometimes we're not joyful because maybe we've never begun to trust in you. Sometimes we're not joyful because sin is creating barriers in our relationship to you. Lord, I pray that we would have the joy that David describes in this passage, that we might know your presence, that we might know your goodness, that we might know your provision, that we might be satisfied in you. Lord, I know I don't understand this as well as I should. Lord, help me to understand it better. Help me, help all of us to know you better. That we might rejoice in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.